This podcast is brought to you by Primary Intelligence, the leader in win-loss analysis, focused on helping businesses uncover the unique story on how each sales rep can win more deals. Hey everyone, and thanks for joining me on another rousing edition of Sales Intelligence Weekly, brought to you by Primary Intelligence. I'm Ryan Queller. Okay, everyone. More than 40% of salespeople say prospecting is the most challenging part of the sales process. Part of the reason is on average, seven people are involved in the buying decision for companies that are between one and 500 employees. And many times, at least one of those people is a C-level person. But only 36% of B2B executives believe that sales reps actually truly understand their business problems, needs, and then offer a clear solution. C-level executives, are key players, the buying committee for a B2B purchase decision more often than not. However, it can be hard to compete for an executive's time and attention as a sales rep, but does it have to be this way? That's the question of the day. Here's the retort. Sales leaders can help their sales reps capture the attention of C-level executives, better demonstrate value, build trust and differentiate from competitors and ultimately help your solution stand out in a sea of vendors. There's an art and method to prospecting into the C-suite, and here to talk about it today is Mr. Denis Champagne, president at Lotus Communications and founder of the Teams Sales Model. Denis, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Ryan. Appreciate it very much. Yeah, it's a pleasure, my friend. All right. So before we get into this, we always have people spill, spill the beans a little bit. Tell us about yourself. Tell us about your experience. Uh, well, if you want to stick to the sales experience, I um, a, a little story. When I was in high school, I had a, a, a Portuguese friend of all people, and we were talking about Portugal earlier, yep. <clears throat> whose family were furniture producers and manufacturers. I heard that these days he's like become a very wealthy person now, great people. And they had asked me to come out and help them sell the idea of getting appointments for their reps to sell the furniture. And in a couple of days, I became their number one. And it wasn't because I was better than anybody. I just was so excited and so uh, honored that they offered me this little job in the evening on the phone, all sitting on their own furniture that they produced. So that was comfortable. And it was a lot of fun. And I just remember how, how much, uh, how rewarding it was to work with some people in a team and achieve objectives for a company that provided value to their clients. And that was kind of my initial kind of crux or, in, uh, you know, introduction to, to selling. Okay. So I, I think you, you've touched on and, and give us some great hooks to talk about value in the future. That is going to be, I think, one of the key pieces of our conversation. Sure. But before we get into that, I want to unpack your experience a little bit more. As I understand it, uh, you speak five languages and you've done consulting and work globally. Is that correct? Correct. I have coached people in Asia Pacific. I have coached people in North America, South America, uh, Europe, some of Europe. And I'm just about to start again with uh, four reps in South America and in Portugal, in in Sao Paulo, in Chile, in Bogota, in Mexico. So yeah, it's um, I, I speak more fluently English, French, and Spanish, and I you know get along fairly well in Italian because of Latin. And my German is probably my weakest, but I have a 
a German friend partner right now. So I'm giving, I'm given the, the grace of a couple of words, sentences here and there. So, yeah, I've, I think the pandemic has helped me a lot in that respect to get, you know, international with my coaching which can be done very well off the Zoom, you know, or video. I know, it's amazing. The technology these days, the allow, allowing people to reach in ways is, is just amazing. And in fact, that's probably one of the things that's changed most in sales process as well, this Correct. digital transformation. And we'll, we'll get to that as well. But tell me this. I shared some, some statistics at the top of the show at the intro that talked about the, mo- the, importance, um, and dif- the importance of the C-suite or the C-level buyer and also the difficulty that salespeople have with selling or buying prospecting into uh, the sea level. Is that the case globally? Is that an issue that no matter where you are, that's a true, a true issue? Well, <clears throat> engaging into an initial conversation out of the blue is always somewhat uncomfortable for most human beings because there's the apprehension or fear of the unknown, right? You go into, there are people who are just openly gregarious and they have that natural style. That does not mean that they'll be successful. But they certainly have a little bit of an edge, but it can be learned. It can be uh, encouraged. And that's why I word the word encourage, because I think an important foundational principle that I use is encouragement with people, especially on the prospecting side, because it's difficult at the beginning. It can be trying, but you can overcome so much by being very, very well prepared. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. Okay. So let's let's get into this because I I mean we've we've set ourselves up with lots of talking points and lots of great hooks to really get into. Let's do this. Let's start with this first question, if we if you will. What are some? Let's start with the challenges. What are some of the biggest challenges that the salespeople face when trying to prospect in to that C level buyer? Not pinpointing the right issues that's important to them. Okay. Tell me more about that. I need to help me. Problem. The real problems that's important to that C-level executive. Every executive has his or her uh, responsibilities that's been, you know, passed down from CEO or the board. They are accountable for certain things. They also have their own personal interests at play. So you have to consider the human being as well as his position as a professional executive for the benefit of the company. So you have to be able to satisfy those two components. One is confidence. It's calmness. It's confidence and, and, and relevance in your understanding of the deep, serious, critical issues that, you know, and I will not use the word, you know, <laughs> keep you from sleeping at night, but that that is foremost top of mind for you. That's really important to that person. So if you can... Uh, be relevant because there's a lot of lack of relevance. Oh, I just wanted to sit down with you and understand your business. No, no executive will give you the time of day. If you are not prepared, if you don't have some deep understanding of the critical issues or the main business issue, MBI, whatever you want to call them, that import of import to him or her. And if you can approach that person with that kind of relevance, the same at the same time, calmness, you know, conversational ease like we've, you know, established together today, that kind of uh, confidence. People love to talk to people who are calm and confident, I found. So there's a lot of work transformationally with the exec, the, the rep to become confident, to sound like an executive 
because you will get relegated down to what you sound like. So there is importance in learning the voice and learning how to speak and practicing. I call it the sales gym. You know, I do, you know, I was watching a picture of one of these Olympic swimmers. They're all muscular. But the article says, guess where he got his muscle? Not from swimming. It was in the gym that he got those muscles. Because swimming will not make, if you look at Mark Spitz from way back to now, these guys are way more muscular than those swimmers back then. So the, uh, the rep, the professional sales prof, you know, rep needs to understand that they have to train for their profession. It's not just enough to be able to speak, to engage, you know, socially, uh, those old Glen Gary, Glen Ross <laughs> styles. It doesn't work anymore. You've got to be relevant you got to understand the timing with these people and their agenda, especially in a multi-channel situation. Okay. So you, you've sliced to the heart of the matter. Relevancy matters a ton. Tell, help me understand specifically how relevancy connects back to demonstrating value to an executive. How does uh, bringing an understanding of their needs early on to the conversation demonstrate value to them and why? Well, if you've done a minimal amount of research, what I do, I had 21 reps from three continents, okay, Asia Pacific, North America. And in every instance, what I did is I asked them to provide me with a one pager on the deep problems, not the superficial problems, the deep critical issues that is stopping those particular executives from uh, to reach their objectives. Uh, in their own words, not in my words, not in the company's uh, pitch deck words, but their own words, because I want reps to be natural, to be really authentic. That's what it is, is to speak the way you speak in home. You know, when you date someone the first day, you sound more smarter. And as you get more comfortable, there's another kind of lingo that's kind of being expressed. Same thing when you've got a client at the beginning, you try to stay formal. And then as you go, you start getting a little bit more like rough and then fun and just relaxed. And you start changing your words and your verbs. Well, start with those verbs and those words at the beginning, like just be yourself. People will. People are not stupid. They can tell by the way you sp you speak if you're comfortable or not. They can tell. Don't underestimate the intelligence of your executives, especially C-suite. They get called by some smart cookies. So if you're not on the on the on the edge, if you're not on you know like in the zone correctly, they can tell. They can tell that you're being wishy-washy. So become comfortable. So practice that. Practice that and practice that again. You know, I mean, LeBron James, is he not practicing every day? I would assume he does. I would assume. Why, should, why shouldn't we, right? Yeah. It's, it's fallacy. It's, it's, it's disheartening to see people assume that just because you have a good voice, voice does matter a lot more than we think, but, and to have that kind of discourse, that narrative that really matters to those people, and get away with it just because you're trying to be an actor. Be yourself. People like to, people to be yourself because they'll be able to tell anyway in the future. You know, the discontinuance between or the, the this dissonance between what you sound at the beginning and, you know, be yourself. So 
I think that rep uh, executives really appreciate when you're just down to earth and even talk about children. When I, when I, when I prospect and I still prospect because I have a job, a small contract as VP and, you know, I asked him, you know, how's life? How's, how have you been? Like, just how have you been? They go, yeah, well, you know, because they realize I'm just relaxed. So they'll relax. Yeah. And when I had my own call center, a, a gentleman who I was doing fundraising for charity at the time, and the gentleman said to me, your prospect's reaction is your attitude. And I said, holy moly, that is powerful. That, that indissociability or inseparability between your environment and yourself. So what's going on right now in your sales results is what's going on inside of you. Mm-mm-mm. Okay, so this the this idea of the authentic, There's I've read books about uh, authenticity. Uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, uh, v- Gary Vaynerchuk uh, wrote that book, um, The Thank You Economy, and he talks about authenticity in that. Authenticity is a real thing, but I want to back up a little bit. You mentioned uh, connecting with and understanding both the executive, like the persona of the the C-level in whatever business vertical that we're talking about, and also the person. And the two are not necessarily the same thing. The persona is not the person, right? So, okay, there's something that's really important here. You're talking about authenticity to the person, but how do we enter the conversation to, to, to pay due respect to the persona of the business problems to drive confidence and trust? Good question. Well, it's got to start with the persona because he's there for a role. He's not there for socializing. But if you show him relevancy about the issues that's important to him in his role, you're you know, showing respect to his role and that it's relevant, that it has meaning, that it has pertinence. And then you can relax and, 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 and at the same time say, but you and I know that we're doing our job, but we can still be comfortable. And that's where the maturity, the conversational maturity, the individual maturity of the people engaging can flourish forward and, you know, become much more of a, what I call a, a wonderful fragrance, a wonderful essence about each other that we get it. You know, we had to do this job, but we're also relaxed and we're confident that we can, you know, hold a conversation and see where it takes us. You know, and if you brought up real things that are like bang, you know, bang on on their issues, they'll say, yeah, because my objective is always to get the next step is a 15 to 20 minute conversation. I'm not asking him to sign the dotted line. I'm asking him to converse, to you know, see where there are commonalities, where there are, you know, to for them to agree that there is a mutually agreed upon problem. Nothing happens until both you and prospect agree that there is a problem mutually. Then we can work for other up, up until that time. Nothing can really, really be accomplished. No, I love that. I have a funny story that I want to share about this idea of authenticity and persona. So I was, uh, I'm the chief delivery officer at Primary Intelligence, and I do a lot of the consulting work with some of our, our senior most uh, customers. And um, I will do stakeholder interviews to get to know them prior to the consulting engagement. On one of these calls, I was with a very uh, high level executive. And he, uh, I think he was the CRO of the, of the organization. And I asked him, 
um, a question and he says, I'll tell you what I want. And I interrupted him and said, what you really, really want. And then he said, wait, did you just spice girls me? And I said, yes, I did. <laughs> and, and, you know, we, we, all of the, whatever walls, whatever barriers were up at that point just came down. They were gone. And we were just human beings talking to find what the actual issue is, all of the stiffness, any kind of concerns that, you know, somebody's trying to, to, to gain an angle was removed. Now, that was the beginning. I still had to prove my, my value. I had to prove my ability to be at the table and my right to be there. But it started off the conversation beautifully. So I think that falls maybe, it, does that kind of get within the, the realm of what you're talking about? Bang on. Okay. Great. So I want to I want to shift gears a little bit. We've talked about some of the challenges, demonstrating value, building trust, competing for time and attention. I want to get a little bit into change. How has prospecting changed over the years? Well, the relationship we have with the idea of it, like access to information is the one thing. So, you know, in 1985, in a call center with a brochure, you drop off a brochure. That's all they got. Where will they go for alternative solutions or sources of information? Unless they have access to a, an archive gallery somewhere where there is a plethora of publications in that industry, that we're talking like the older, older version of what a real database today is or a Google, there was none. So they would reply and rely on the veracity and the quantity and quality of information that's in front of them. So all you had to do is to be persistent, you know, and if you have any grace to continue the, you know, the relationship with the person and you would end up getting the deal. Uh, in 2022, uh, buyers or, or the buyer committee or whatever you want to call it, uh, the entity is probably at 60 to 70% of its journey into buying before they probably engage with you. You think that you're that early? I don't think so, because the web is so agile and those portable smartphones we have is a mini computer and it gives you access to the world. So you can quickly within a few clicks of uh, expressions or keywords, you're likely to be able to bang in and bank up on, on some valuable information for yourself and read succinctly some stuff. So when someone calls you, if they're in that ballpark of relevancy, as you said, and they say, I have some ideas to share with you, would you be against a little 15-minute call? I don't say, would you, are you interested in getting a call? No, would you be against? I want them to say no to me. No, I'm not against that. Okay, then let's get together. I've got tomorrow at 10 or 11, which one's best? And then you book a 15-minute call. So it's about... Uh, being, again, mature, but savvy with your tech. Know your tech. Know your tech stack, your tools, right? Don't become guilty of sales malpractice but not knowing technology. You have to be agile. Uh, you, your emotional intelligence, your grace, your immaturity, your ability, and say things that are intelligent, right, that are relevant. Uh, people like when people speak well. I mean, one of the criteria. I remember a survey that was produced many, many years ago, a couple of decades ago, uh, that said the two most important key to success is speak well and write well. So I, I want to unpack something you just said um, 
for uh, a minute ago. Benny, it was um, sales malpractice. Don't commit sales malpractice. I need you to help me unpack that a little bit more. I mean, this is Sales Intelligence Weekly. And um, I, I have an assumption of where you're going to go, but I really want to understand your perception around this and why that's so important to not practice sales malpractice. Well, first of all, is not to base yourself on previous decades of sales success. Preach, brother. Let's go. Right. Yeah. So, you know, they're, they're, you know I'm, in my, I'm in an age bracket where I'm a real boomer, but I also learn, I learned most of what I've learned in the last few years has been from people in their 30s, 40s, who are brilliant young professionals in sales, who understand things that I probably don't understand. I very much appreciate the millennials viewpoint to the worldview of, of relevance and caring for the environment and, you know, uh, ESG, you know, as government governance and, and sustainability. Uh, and there is a community com concept to that. I think that uh, humanistic conduct, humanistic approach to work uh, is becoming much more important how to relate to another person. And that, you know, the executive assistant, the virtual assistant, the, the, um, you know, the, the, the sales professional, the CRO, uh, the sales enablement professional, all of them matter because they're all, you know, part of the decision directly or indirectly to influence. So you have to learn to socialize and politicize a consensus and get to know which conversations you hold with which people. A CFO's point of view doesn't care about numbers and sales. He cares about the finality of the forecast accuracy for liquidity, for money. He's the recipient of the dollar that accounts for all the other expenses against the profit. I was just with a young rep this morning, a manager who's hiring me for four reps in his company in Portland, Oregon. And he was... He says, the, pro, the owner wants to have a, a numbers report. I said, well, look at last year, what they sold, the number of deals, divide that by a number, and look at the margin of profit, and then say, if we get one more sale, we will have paid all the training and then some. So it wasn't a hard business case. So it's to help people to craft the, the, the language of different people. The CEO, that's what he wants to hear. The sales manager wants to hear the metrics or the OKRs or objective and key results or whatever, KPIs or key result areas, the KRA. So data has got to be there. You got to be intelligent. A big problem though I find is that data is misused because if you can interpret the data, what are you going to do with it? Yes, we say this all the time. So primary intelligence, we do win-loss analysis. And one of the things I do when I get in my consulting, oftentimes is say, look, data without meaning is homeless. It's meaningless. In fact, what it ends up doing is it becomes an obstacle because it's just more data that I have to sift through. We have to bring meaning, relevant meaning to the buyer. Okay, right. so, so keep going here. I, we need to understand this even better. We have more and more, you know, one of the big changes that's happened over the years is the number of people that you've been outlining that are involved in the decision-making process. It has exponentially grown. Back in the day, it didn't used to be 10, 12 people, 7, 10, 12 people. It used to be one or two. Now we've got literally 
committees, cross-departmental committees, ranging from procurement all the way to the executive team. So what do we do as the sales professional? It's, it's, it feels overwhelming to have to deal with a cult of personality when we're dealing with um, a, a buying committee. How do we navigate those waters effectively? Well, first of all is know what is meaningful to each of those players. Some of them are more direct influencers, some of them more are indirect. Depending on the industry, the vertical, the time of year, you know, if it's the end of year or beginning of year, if there's more flexibility in the dollars, if the CFO will know that, will tell you. You got to have some financial literacy about the company. We look at their 10K, know a little bit where they're at, know some of the trigger events, what's going on. Go to PR, a public relation websites like Newswire. You know, and even South America, in, in Sao Paulo, in, 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 in Brazil, in the mining industry with my engineering rep, we went to certain portals where we found issues, big problems with that mining company that he put into his CRM, the link to the article, and he could read about it. So when he called on to these engineering uh, experts or the community manager, for the mine, the gold, the, the you know the mining uh, installation, he knew things that the other said. Oh my goodness, this guy's well informed. So I can't put wool over his eyes. So he comes, but it, they gain respect. You gain respect when you know what you're talking about. You've done your research. You show you care. You can say we found, we thought about you. We took the time, and we know this. This is this. Is this still a problem, or is this uh, still a challenge? They may not have any challenge. It shows that you're really a professional. Mm. The other thing is data. There's a lot of people who what I call analytically immature. They're not able to interpret the data. Mm, That's so good. That's so good. Why is that important? Tell me more. Well, it's because in the grain of the information, you can infer or refer to some of that information to kind of correlate with something else. And then as a team, you don't have to have all the answers. You just have to have the right questions, some insinuations from what you've read. And you are a collaborative partner that brings value to the table because we're a committee. No one has all the answers. But I found it in a committee, there's always one chief decision maker. Almost always, almost always, right? And it's not necessarily the executives. He has or she has under him or her a powerful person who's been there for a long time, who's been through the gutter and back and know the, the, the stuff. And I know that in my case, prospecting in a certain world for a while in the mining industry here in Canada, uh, the VP of sales from the company, the company I was prospecting for made a huge boo-boo and pissed her off and we didn't get the deal. I said, be careful. I told you, you did not follow through. You did not take your car and drive over there. Go see her, sit down with that person. And he was actually, he made a huge mistake. We both lost and the company as well. So be very careful not to underestimate the value of each person. And if you approach it that way with respect and and reverence, you know, 
In win-loss analysis, because I'm familiar with win-loss analysis, and one of the things that the real win analysis gave is we like him, we pay more with him than another competitor, but we, we can work with this person. It's easy to work with. There's a sense of fairness, of thoroughness, of rigor, of caring, of timely, of punctuality, of maturity. We like working with this person. And I've made some very good sales in my career because people, the president would say, you know what? Natalie likes to work with you. So I guess you got the contract. Yeah. Be easy to work with. So I, I think that's, that's key here. A key message to unlocking uh, value or, or making it easy for our buyers to see and unlock the value for them. And, and really you said something that, that really piqued my attention and I, and I want to tie it into this next question, but, but you, you, you painted a picture, a picture that makes it sound like we're not selling so much as we're problem solving, right? So we're, we're in there trying to under, we're understanding their problems and helping them solve the issues that are confronting them that they can't solve by themselves. And at, at its core, when we can do that, we've reached a level of understanding, credibility, and potentially ease of, of, of conversation. The next question I really want to get into is, we have this cult of personality, we have the, the seven buyers. When in the sales cycle should we engage or involve the C-suite? Oh, I, from the get-go, I, I go right to the C-suite first call. Tell me about, tell me more about that. Why, well, I mean, my, all my, uh, my, my 15 years of having prospected all over the world in software industry as well, in aviation and stuff, I always talk to executives. My, you know, it's, it's executives right away. Okay. Is there ever a time when sale, a sales rep should avoid going to an executive? When he's not prepared. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Avoid okay. at all costs. So why, 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 why not? Why not go? Can you, can you meet anybody ill-prepared or is that like the only place where you should avoid being, that's that malpractice thing you were talking about before, right? Well, that's part of the malpractice. It's a suite of skills, tools, competencies, gestures, actions, you know, uh, access to information. You know, always be prepared. You know, like a boy scout, always prepared. Right. Um, so um no, I don't think there's any time where you can go ill-prepared. It just, it's, it's too important. It is your earning. It's the way you make money. Is You make a living. Hopefully, you'll make a life with selling because it's a wonderful world if you, you know, know how to be a good learner. And I always say a good learner is a good earner. Um, be a student. Uh, I'm learning more now at my age than I ever have. So, but so don't go in, you know, it's like going for a, a swim, you know, go in knowing how to swim, how to navigate the waters, the currents, the undercurrents, because in the river of life, there's a current, but there's a lot of undercurrents under that we can't see. So we don't know what's going on with that person. So if you come prepared and you're confident, I mean, Again, in the 80s, 70s, 90s, we could wing it just by becoming we were very good, but not anymore, just because people are now working, even executives are working from home. I had a senior executive VP once and he had a baby in his hand as I was talking to him, right? So you got to be flexible. You got to be, you know, 
adaptable. You got to be a chameleon. You know, you've got to be able to to navigate those those uncertainties and and just go with the flow. And you know, as long as you're a decent, caring professional in your work, you want to help the company achieve their outcomes. But if you are a good problem solver, I would say first become a good problem finder. So that's why in the beginning, you know the problem. If you knew a company had exactly a specific problem and you knew for sure someone gave you the insights, the information, and you were to call, how, feel, how would you feel about it when you called? You'd be happy. You'd be calm. You got to be controlling yourself because you're too excited because you know exactly their problem, Right. So go with that expectation, but prepare yourself for it. You know, you talked about uh, my racing and cycling. Well, I had an Olympic coach and I trained six days a week. When I came to a race, do you think I was that nervous? Not a whole lot. I was prepared. Mm. Whatever happened in the peloton, they attacked. I followed the attack. I could stay within that little peloton at the beginning, at the, the front. They attacked and they would you know, shoot up to 30 miles an hour. I was there, right? So um, same thing in life. If you if you're properly trained, you practice, there's no need to worry. You just, you'll figure it out, but get prepared. Make sure you have a good impact on the first call, you know, at least in the first 10 seconds, actually, I have a little bit of a methodology I use when I use my. Yeah. So I want to get to this. How, how do we do this? Right. So it's easy to talk about. uh, And there's a saying that a a friend of mine says, it's a says easy does hard. Right. So tell me a little bit about this. You know, how can you actually help build sales reps confidence to prepare them to speak to the C-suite? How do you do this? Well, they call me. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go, Denis. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm, it's because I love I love helping, especially the young reps. Like I really get a lot of a lot of satisfaction of seeing the youth really take our profession to another level. So for sure, uh, you know, um, I know I can help them. But I practiced it because I remember even in the eighties, I used to put a watch, you know, with the TikTok seconds. I would put it. I would remove it from my wrist. I don't wear it anymore. Even my wedding band, I don't wear. I don't want to wear anything now anymore. But. I used to put, and I, when I got on the phone in a transactional selling over the phone in the call center I owned, um, I would focus all my energy for the first 10 seconds on eliciting the right response from the person. And then I would kind of open up and go right to the heart and core of the pretext or reason for my calling. But my, my, my most, my biggest focus was getting that attention grabbing their attention because they may be looking at something or a computer or a piece of paper or I get their attention. Once I got the first seven, 10 seconds, I got them like they're paying attention to me. Then I could flow. And a lot of people don't realize that they're not being heard. Mm. Why do you think they're not being heard? It's because of, you know, Somebody picks up the phone and they're multitasking. Why aren't they being heard? Because they did not follow my methodology. Uh, <laughs> so here's, I'll tell you, it's very simple. And, you know, people can apply it and use it at will. It's there. It's there. But when I call someone, I'll, they, they, they will answer and, uh, you know, I'll say, I'll say, um, Mr. Cuellar. They say, yeah. Ryan Cuellar. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, hi, Mr. Cuellar. Dennis for Lotus Communications. How have you been, sir? Very calm like that. Remember, I noticed your, I mentioned your name three times. Mr. Cuellar? Yes. Ryan Cuellar? Yes. Oh, hi, Mr. Cuellar. That's not even six seconds. So your name is right away, you, you pay attention because it's your name. It's never failed me or very rarely failed me. Did I go beyond, you know, the, the depth of, and the length of, of conversation sometimes for all kinds of reasons beyond or within me? Uh, it wasn't successful, but certainly I got their attention. Okay. So that's a tactic that can be used to draw attention. That's step one. Is there a step two? I'm, I'm assuming there's a step two, three, four, whatever it is. Well, it's, it's, it, it, again, um, that's where the art, the culture, cultivating a relationship with person, not everybody works the same. Uh, that, and I say, how have you been? I don't say, how are you? I've been saying that for three, four years now. Now I, I see these young trainers on LinkedIn who have heard me say it. Maybe they came up with that thought. But for me, it infers that you're concerned about the person from the past, not only in that moment. Isolate, how are you today? No, how have you been? What do you do with your friends when you haven't spoken to them in a few months? How have you been, man? It's yeah. been a while. Wow, it's been a while, right? So if you ask someone like that, it kind of psychologically infers or refers to a time behind in the past. So it's like you're creating a length of, of elasticity of a relationship that it's been a while that we haven't spoken. It's, it's very kind of cognitive, but it certainly has brought people to go, how have I been? Yeah. Right. And it causes people to think, so they're engaged. Yeah. And the, the way I ask it too, it's calmer and relaxed. How have you been, man? How have you been? Or how have you been? Like it changes with voice, right? But in their ear, they're listening to the person is saying, can I trust his voice? That's the number one thing they're uh, trying to figure out the persona, the person. And if they feel, yeah, this person seems authentic, because they can tell when it's authentic. And I'll back that up, if you allow me. Please. In England, there's a magazine called Nature. It's a scientific publication. And a large, long number of years, a couple of decades ago, they did an experiment with various media. So they used radio, they used television, and they used print. To try to figure out with a false message in one of the print articles and a true message in another article, they subjected people, listeners, viewers, and readers to the three medium. In 75% of the cases, everyone was misled or tricked in believing the true from the false on television. 50-50 on the readership of the newspaper article, but almost everybody picked up on the bullshit on the radio. <laughs> why? Tell me why. The voice. You can't hide your second face, which is your voice. People, I feel trusting. I feel I'm a person of integrity, and that's what I project. And tomorrow morning, Zig Ziglar will tell you this. He used to say it. The most important arsenal in your salesman toolbox is your own personal integrity. 
There is nothing more important than carrying through and delivering on your word. That's all you've got. Yeah, my dad to fault, my dad used to say, um, true power comes from making and keeping commitments. If, if you say a thing and do a thing, that makes you powerful. It's not money. It's that is what makes you powerful. That and today, that's your brand. That's your brand. Even a company's brand is delivering on your promise. Mm. And boy, we can go down a rabbit hole on that discussion, as you know. Probably. That's a whole other episode we'll have to do, Denny. So, so, so tell me this, why? If we can't hide our second face, why do we try? Why do people even attempt to do it? Because they're insecure about who they are. Hmm. So this circles back to the preparation that you were talking about. If you All want right. to create self-confidence, do your preparation. Do your preparation. Do not commit the sin of sales malpractice. <laughs> in, my team, in my team's model... The number one is the letter T, right? Target. But it's not just targeting your prospect. Target your heart. Target your motivation. Target your intent. Target all of your, your, your areas of improvement that needs to be polished. Target yourself first. Why are you in this work world of selling? Selling is it requires a revival of your own soul of uh, kind of a transformation of yourself who i am now and how i sell now is nothing to do with what i was and so people can really appreciate and respect someone who sounds there are people who are amazing salespeople. you listen to them um you know well you know obviously z but there are a few others that i really trusted just by, because of their voice and their intent, I know I'm in good hands with that person. I know they'll take care of me, you know, and, uh, and people love to buy from people who love to sell. And the word selling in old English means to give, by the way, salan. If you check out the word, the, the Wikipedia, salan means to give. So giving is more, there's more giving and selling than, than, than taking, as you probably know yourself. You got to give a lot to a client so that they decide, okay, you know, and you keep giving and you keep giving and you keep giving because that's, what's important is to serve them, give them. Okay. Okay. I, I love this. Let's, let's wrap our conversation around this question. Denny, what's the single best piece of advice that you would give our listeners today on how to give better? Seek a mentor that you that you admire and learn from him and then read about it. Why, a mentor, why is a mentor so important? Well, you have eyebrows, but your mentor can see them. Nor can you see the horizon in the distance. But a mentor can see things about you. There's a, a, a heart surgeon, a heart surgeon, who sought a mentor, one of his professors in university, and he paid him to come into the operating room and watch him, watch him perform a surgery. And he was all confident. It's in on TED, TED.com. You can go check it out. I, I posted it on my LinkedIn profile, so you can go see it. And uh, to his surprise, he thought, geez, I have probably flashing A's, you know, and good notes. 
and the professor had like three pages of errors and mistakes. Just because you've been doing something for a long time doesn't mean you're good at it. You could be doing the wrong thing for 30 years. You didn't know. So I was going to say, I've been married for 23 years. I think my wife could tell you how often I've been doing <laughs> the wrong thing, pal. So no, I, I'm, picking up what you, I'm picking up what you're laying down there. <laughs> so I'm not impressed with someone who's been 35 years or 40 years because I met people who are four or five years in the world of selling and they are brilliant, you know, and they, they have this maturity about them. There are people who are just more mature than others, right? I mean, who are people I call of middle or high capacity or low capacity. They're not, they're all people, but there's different attributes, right? And qualities. Um, so it's, it's having that kind of willingness to, to be a bit humble and learn from someone that you trust. It's got to be someone you trust, that you admire. It doesn't necessarily have to be a sales mentor. It could be a mentor. Mentor for life. You know, I have a mentor. I'm a Buddhist. I'm a practicing Buddhist. I have a mentor that I read about him. He encourages me. Every time I read, I sense that he's talking to me. Um, and then I learn from people like you and every day, you know, and trying to ask yourself, what do I need to be changing, you know, and then results hit you, bad or good, and you go, okay, what is that talking? It's talking to me. What do I need to be changing? I'm going through that crisis right now in the last year, personally. So, you know, you hit a certain age bracket, you think a different way. You know, when I was 25, I didn't think. <laughs> I just didn't think. <laughs> it was forget thinking, no thinking, just doing, right? But as I grew up, I, you know, stuff hits you hard. I lost everything 20 years ago. Uh, that that wakes you up, believe me. Hum, humil humility and 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 tears and and fear and fears for tears and tears for fears tears for fears. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, um, you know, life so life will hit you. So, a mentor can help you, can guide you. I mean, in squash as a professional, I had a coach. Why couldn't I have a coach for successful sales or, you know, that's why I do what I do because I, I want to help, you know, people of all ages. I've helped executives who were corporate that now are on their own as a consultant. They don't know how to prospect. They've never had to. All of a sudden they're confronted with some of the things that you need. So I help them structure. My team's model helps them. And I, I get some wonderful feedback from them and thank yous and stuff. The best thing is they refer me a friend of theirs. That tells me I think I did an okay job with them, you know, and I stay with them as friends and just continue to encourage them. Coaching is a vocation. So <clears throat> find a coach, find a coach that you admire or that you care for or that you sense he will care for you. He will take care of you. Denis, you've given us and our listeners a lot to work with. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for sharing your expertise and thinking on the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I, I, I love to do this. This is, this is going to give me energy and fuel for the rest of the day, for sure. For sure. This has been so insightful. So sales leaders, take something you've learned from today's show and apply it to your sales team this month and let us know how it's impacting your sales and your salespeople, especially your people. And listeners, 
For more from Primary Intelligence and Lotus Communications, make sure to check out the show notes at primary-intel.com forward slash podcast. And don't forget to subscribe and share so that you never miss an episode. I know nobody would do that. We'll see you next time.